Welcome to the Neurodiverse Love Podcast. I'm Mona, and I was in a neurodiverse marriage for 30 years and in that relationship for 32. And I've been divorced for about three and a half years, and we have an amazing 25-year-old daughter. And I'm here with my co-host, Manisa. Hi, I'm Manisa. I've been in a neurodiverse relationship for the past eight years, been married for six And while in school to become a board certified behavior analyst, I noticed that my husband uh, was on the spectrum. Yes, it's so interesting how we learn these things. So we are so excited to have uh, our guests tonight with us, Dr. Joe Court and his husband, Mike. They've been married for a long time. And I found Joe on another, um, I think it was on TikTok, actually, Joe, your TikTok kind of went viral about your relationship with Mike. And we are so thrilled to have you here tonight. So thank you for being here. It's great to have neurodiverse couples that are willing to share a little bit about their lived experience and their stories. So thank you both for joining us. Yeah, you're welcome. You know, Uh, that that, uh, video that you're talking about, I looked it up. It was uh, right here at the kitchen table where, or the dining room table where we're sitting. It has now 5.2 million. <gasps> and I'll tell you what, it was so emotional for me. Not to make it. I was like, okay, I'll just say, I, it was nothing to make. But most of the people that enjoyed it and stitched it and duetted it on TikTok were the mothers of people of neurodiverse children who said, thank you for giving me hope that my child could have a life with somebody like yours. I was so touched by that. Wow, Joe, that is so awesome. And, you know, that's kind of why Manisa and I are doing the work that we're doing, because neither one of us knew, like you and Mike, that we were in a neurodiverse relationship when we started. And if people know and they have the resources and the strategies and the tools to understand each other better, they can avoid, you know, unintentional pain and hurt. So I'm so glad that you did that. And you have you said over 5 million people? Yeah, it's You're crazy. That's yeah. amazing. Phenomenal. So thank you for doing that. Thank you. Yeah. So, so, you know, we always like to start out by asking our uh, guests kind of what attracted you to each other and how did you meet? Because it's always a, a, a cute story usually. So Joe or Mike, which one of you would like to start? Well, Joe will tell you how we met, but as far as what attracted me to him, I can't say. It was intuitive. I never had that feeling for anyone else I was around. And it just seemed right. Oh, that's awesome, Mike. Mm -hmm. I love that. Yes. Um, And actually, that's sometimes the source of irritation um, when he says things like that, because he'll say, I can't explain it. I don't have the words. I I don't, you know, can't verbalize it. And I need that. So mm-hmm. yes. you know, he really can't. And I used to not understand that before I, I knew he had, uh, he was on the autism spectrum. I thought, well, how can I, I I'm asking you for this. Just give me, I, you don't have to come up with that on your own. Just tell me. So uh, it's okay now, but in the beginning, it was really hard. I hear you. Mm-hmm. I hear you. So what about you, Joe? What attracted you to Mike? Um, I was attracted to, he was, um, we were at, so we live in Detroit, Michigan, and there's something called Affirmations here. It's an LGBT community center. And um, he would make sure every time we were in the building that he was near me. He was either outside the door, or we, afterwards we'd all go out to eat, and uh, then we were at some event, and he was right there. And I just, tell he was, he didn't talk to me, he would just be there, you know? And it was sweet. I could see his face was vulnerable, and I, I kind of could tell. 
and he was interested in me. So I just walked up to him at an event, at one of these LGBT events, and started talking, and we just hit it off really well. And then we went on our first date a couple weeks later, and that was it. I love it. I love it. It is such, I mean, it just brings a smile to my face, because I'll tell you, Joe and Mike, I had to ask my ex out. (laughs) Um, And it was really... I don't even think he knew at first that I was interested in him. So it was very sweet and, and cute. So thank you so much for sharing mm-hmm. that story. Yeah. So how long have you guys been together and how long have you been married? We've been together since uh, 1993. So 29 years almost. Wow. And I know. And then uh, we've been married. October 29th was 21 years. Wow. Well, wow. Illegally, uh, well, we did it in 2004 in Massachusetts. We uh-huh. could be civil union, I think it was called, or what was it? Marriage. Oh, no, we were able to get married. It was marriage. But you, you, it was in Massachusetts. You, couldn't, you weren't married once you came to Michigan. But once marriage became uh, legal in the United States, it was in 2015. It still went back to 2004. Oh, that's mm-hmm. wonderful. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. You guys, that's, that's a fantastic history and story. Thank you so much for sharing that. And and Mike, do you have a formal diagnosis or was it more a, a self-diagnosis? Uh, Joe basically diagnosed. I had problems since childhood, but it wasn't put down to any diagnosis. Gotcha. And so that was, I'm sorry, go ahead, Melissa. No, go ahead. no, 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 go ahead, Melissa. So that was my question. So uh, Mike said, I'm sorry, Joe said he discovered that Mike was on the spectrum. So can you... T- can you all talk a le- talk a little bit about when you first discovered that Mike was on the spectrum? Yeah, well, for me, you know, so there was no, and still, I don't really know of any formal diagnosis for adults. But for sure, in 2010, when I started to notice it, um, there wasn't. But what was happening is we were seeing more and more adults and identifying them as as, as having Asperger's at the time we called it. And I um, I just started listening to other colleagues talk. And then I started seeing the clients coming through my office. And then I, what really cemented it for me was this movie called Adam. Mm. And it's about an adult man who has Asperger's and struggles with love and living. And, and I want to tell you, in that movie, there were probably two scenes that I couldn't recognize Mike. But the rest, even at his mother's funeral, because I remember thinking that this might be, I, you know, I'm a therapist, right? So I used to think, oh, was there a childhood trauma he doesn't tell me about? Is there something I don't know? You know, I would probe and probe and probe. There was nothing until, um, and I thought, well, when his mother dies, maybe that'll be different. That'll, that'll you know, but it wasn't. He, he handled it well. You know, he was emotional appropriately. He was, and, and then he just went through it. But he, he, so when I watched Adam in the movie and they portrayed that character losing his father in the very beginning scene, it was just like Mike. And I don't know. I just said, and when we, he was watching Big Bang Theory and I, I would watch it here and there with him and, and that Sheldon just stood out to me. I'm like, everything about Sheldon, so much about him, reminds me of you. Does it not remind? And he didn't like it at first. It bothered mm. him because he always attributed it to his IQ. He never, um, and it didn't make sense to me because I knew other people with his IQ. He's in Mensa. He's over 160 IQ. Wow. And I, I, I'd not, not seen this kind of autistic um, feature. But uh, so I just kept pressing until he finally realized that it was true. Wow. And so the movie Adam kind of made you think 
that Mike was on the spectrum. Mike, how did you feel when you heard that this might be something you didn't know you were dealing with all your life? How did it make you feel to have the informal diagnosis from Joe? Well, I didn't really believe it at first. It took a while. I had preconceived ideas of what Asperger's was. And I had to read up more on it. And more things fell into place for my life now. And then later on, more things fell into place about my childhood, matching this, the uh, cycle. So, yeah. Mike, would it be safe to say that growing up, because your IQ is so high that you just attributed your difference as someone who was just highly intelligent and that's why people didn't relate to you yes okay yeah see i think i think that's really interesting um i i've talked to or we've talked to other folks who when they as an adult get a diagnosis it's challenging to have to look back at your entire life through this new lens. And it's not just about looking at your relationship through a new lens. It's looking at your whole life. So I'd love if both of you would like talk a little bit about maybe knowing that you're a neurodiverse couple when you you know first discovered and, and Mike, you said, mm, yeah, I think Joe's right. How did that change or did it change your relationship at all? And then, Mike, how did it change your view of the life before you knew you were on the spectrum? So you can start with either question, because I think they're both very, very interesting. It didn't. Well, I'm able to recognize it. Uh, would have been better if I had been diagnosed and had help. But I achieved everything I wanted to. Awesome. So it's, I'm not going to think backwards about, because it's not like it's a horrible experience. It's just, I found that, particularly that's why I thought it was the IQ. I could talk to people older than I was because mm. I had their level of information. Sure. So. So as a, again, I'm pointing out that your academic intelligence, you know, far surpassed um, the average person, but then the social emotional intelligence where, you know, there were some differences. Yes. The social emotional intelligence was actually less than my chronological age. So I had like three ages, my chronological age, my social emotional age, which was less probably because of less experience and my, uh, your IQ, yeah, mm -hmm. putting me, you know, like eight years in the future as far as being able to talk to people. That is so interesting. I, I love how you put that, Mike. You have your chronological yes. age, your social and emotional age, and your intellectual age. And I think that for a lot of autistic people who are have high IQs, who are gifted, um, or are Mensa, I think that they could relate to that. And so where they're, you know, exceeding their peers in some areas, in the social and emotional area, they might not be. And it's a, it's a toss up, you know, is it okay 
in most situations not to have the same level of social and emotional intelligence. The people we've talked to, you know, it's it's a mixed bag, you know. Um, Let's talk a little bit about your relationship. Like how in the beginning um, was it different versus when you both realized that you were a neurodiverse couple? Can you compare the two? Well, I'll tell you, for me, when you asked, you know, did it change our relationship? It changed it, every, it a lot for me because we had a lot of conflict. Mm. Um, because for me, I come from an extremely narcissistic family. Like, I can't mention one adult that raised me that is not narcissistic. Wow. And, you know, a lot of um, autism mirrors narcissism. Yeah. It appears that way. Even And yes. I, we've been in couples therapy and... These therapists, would, they didn't know it was autism, but they were like, he's not narcissistic. I don't see what you're saying. I see why it triggers you. I see why. But I was like, no. And so it would just send me off. And then once I saw that movie, Adam, and I realized that's what this was, 50% of my our problems went away because I wasn't perceiving him in that way. I didn't because I could always also see how much he tried with me. Mm. I've always said this to him. I could see how hard this was for him. Um, and so that always meant something to me. Like, I don't come from a family that tries. If mm. I need something or I need them to try, they're like, you know, go F yourself. We were not into that, you know? <laughs> he wasn't like that. He was like, oh, no. And he would do that. So that was always in the back of my mind. And once I realized what it was, I don't know. I, I always feel like I wish we could all diagnose our partners. Because if you could and you could understand what's going on, you wouldn't feel, take it so personally. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that I realized um, is after our daughter was born, I had postpartum depression and I've had depression for 25 years and didn't realize that it was impacting my relationship. And I did finally go on um, Cymbalta and I've talked about this in other podcasts and it made such a difference in how I viewed things, you know, and I, I agree with you. I'm a social worker, Joe. So I understand that not that our partners want to be diagnosed, but if we truly understood where the other person was coming from, if they did have a different neurotype or they did have some mental health or mental illness issues, it would really be helpful. I totally agree. Because, you know, Mike, I, I, I really would love to know, like, what do you see as the biggest emotional and social differences that you and Mike have? I mean, you and Joe have, you know, even before you knew you were a neurodiverse couple, how do you both differ in socializing and the social aspects of your life and emotion, emotions, showing them or feeling emotional besides what Joe talked about with your mom's funeral? Well, I really never had a social life, and it doesn't bother me to be alone. Mm. So I never really pursue people. Gotcha. So what what were the things that were your um, interests, your, your special interests that you did do that brought you, you know, joy or happiness or peace? Um, well, my work was a, lo- a large part of it. I threw myself into that as soon as I graduated. And did a lot of overtime and a lot of extra work. Awesome. And then I had different ideas. I wanted to purchase a house by the time I was 30, which I did. Awesome. I wanted to decorate it. Had interest in cars, architecture. So I had and a huge amount of books. I started reading a lot of books starting in grade school. And that continued into college. 
So you had a lot of different interests and loves, but not as many social loves. And it sounds like, Joe, you knew immediately you were feeling something different than you had ever felt before with Joe. That's awesome. That's awesome. And what about you, Joe? I mean, as far as your socializing before you met uh, Mike and how you handle, you know, emotional issues, what are the differences that you saw? Yeah, very different. You know, I, I always knew I didn't want a partner that wanted to do everything with me. That mm. uh, I know a lot of my couples that come and see me or pe- friends we have are like, oh, no, I want my partner has to be my friend and we have to go everywhere together. And that would feel smothering and suffocating. So I liked that he uh, we did enough together. But then I had my own social and he was never jealous. You know, in the gay community, when you're both a male couple, then you have male friends. That can be complicated, right? Are sure. you friends? Are you what's going on? But he was never like that. It was never and people would say, Doesn't he get isn't he bothered? You're here, you're there, you're with us. No, he really wasn't. And one time I said to him, Aren't you did you feel lonely all the years before you met me? He said, No, I really don't. And and one time he told me to stop asking him because <laughs> I always would ask him. He'd say, I really wasn't lonely. I was really content with just being by myself. And it was it that's not me, right? I, right. I can be by myself, but I'd rather be with people. Right. I can totally relate, Joe, because my ex used to tell me that he would go out by himself and he had like one friend. And I thought, oh, my gosh, that has to be so lonely. (laughs) And that's one of the reasons I invited him out for our first date. I felt sorry for him. But then I realized he loved going out by himself. He loved not having to be on anybody else's schedule, going to the places he wanted to go you know, and, and then when we separated, he started doing that. You know, he would go out at one o'clock at night, which I'd be <laughs> fast asleep. Yeah. <laughs> so isn't that nice that you both found how to complement each other's strengths and to understand each other's differences when it comes to social and emotional issues? I love it. I love it. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Yeah, it was I love it. way harder though. when I moved into this house. Uh, you know, it was his house. Now we live together in it. But Okay. It was like, you know, it was really like Sheldon, you know, he had his favorite this, he had, I couldn't whistle, you know, like all the rules, like without, <laughs> it was, but really when I moved in, I couldn't even put a picture up. I had one room and, you know, I was 30, he was 37. I was just starting out. I didn't really have much furniture. So, and I, and I was in a small little tiny apartment and it was okay at first and we made it work. And I said, but I'm not going to live like this. I want to see myself throughout this house, you know, mm-hmm. and it took us two years to do that. It took him a long time. I think we both had to get used to this whole being di- how different we were, you know, mm-hmm. what do you think, what do you think changed for both of you during those few f- first two years? Like Mike, what did you have to adjust to so that Joe could have a place in your house since it was your house that he was moving into? Because I think that as more adults get diagnosed you know, they've had their lives, they have their homes, they have their routines. How does how does somebody welcome, you know, the love of their life into their home and their routine? How, how do you, if you can remember back to, to when you first had Joe move in, how did that work? And does it, well, did it cause stress for you? Yes, because I told you I was interested in architecture and interior design. So bought the house in 86 and spent like seven years without changing a thing, planning on redecorating it. And I had just finished redecorating it when he came. 
and he wanted to get rid of everything. <laughs> I did, but he, he didn't appreciate he didn't appreciate anything I had done. No, it was all meaningless to him. Wow. Well, and the reason it was meaningless to me is even though I'm Jewish, people don't realize you could be Jewish and poor. And yeah. so I grew up with no money, right? My mother was just a secretary income. So I didn't know. I, I just didn't know, even though I'm gay even, I didn't know that, you know, he purchased the couch with the frame and a designer and fabric and all this stuff. And it was nothing that I liked. It was this Georgian style and I wasn't, I was more modern. So I really didn't appreciate it. And now I feel bad about it. I look back and I think, oh, because now we still have all that furniture. And now I realize it's him. You know, yeah. and I love it because it's him, not because it would be something I'd pick out. Wow. And the fact that um, that, Mike, you put so much time and effort into buying probably the highest quality fabrics and the highest quality, you know, furniture. And then Joe walks in and he he didn't he didn't get it. He didn't get all the work that you had put into it. Yes. And thing was specifically picked out. You know, very, it meant something to me because I spent a long time trying to find something. That's awesome. And That's I awesome. had a picture in my mind for years about what the house would look like, and I was finally able to accomplish it. Well, congratulations to you. And Joe, I mean, I, I got to give you credit for being able, both of you, for being able to adjust because being in your 30s, you know, you can get into some routines and it might be hard to have somebody else come into your life, but it, it sounds like you guys eventually figured it out. That's awesome. And that the um, that kind of reminds me of some of the thinking and processing differences that happen in neurodiverse relationships. I know with my husband and I, that's the struggle for us is trying to com- him me trying to communicate exactly what I need without you know giving it a lot of words and him being able to process it. So how do you all deal with some of those thinking um, and processing differences in your relationship? That's a good question. Let me just, I want to just add one thing. When we um, decided that we were really going to stay together, this was really happening. Um, we did uh, take over the, lo- the basement. We turned it into what we now call a lower level. So that had more of my taste and my pictures and I could pick stuff out that was meaningful to me. So that's one way we, because we argued so much about, the upstairs and what we're, we're going to move, weren't we going to move and all of that. But I think the way we just, the emotional differences, I just, I can't speak for Mike, but for me, I've just had to learn that not everything needs discussion and, mm. and I, you know, I'm a therapist, right? So I think, well, we got to talk about this until it's done. Even if we have to be up all night, you know, that's how we have to do this. And he wasn't like that. He's like, I'm going to bed. I know that's like a normal thing in couples where mm. one does that and one doesn't. But for me, it was like there was so many times like that. And over time, I realized, even though I, I do force certain conversations because they're, they're needed and mm-hmm. I can't, I'm not, I, I have my own boundary. I'm not going to not talk about certain things. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a relief for me to kind of go, all right, we really don't have to talk about all these things. It will work itself out. And it did. And it would. I love that. I love them. that. Yeah. Did you have something you wanted to share about that, Mike? Oh. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm kind of limited in my ability to adapt to other people. Mm-hmm. And I seem to always have an answer already. So conversations have been difficult because I can't always see another side to it. So I just have to wait. 
So there's not a lot of like chit chat or idle conversation in your relationship or is it, or is most of the conversation very transactional, like to get things done or um, to pay a bill or how do you, how do you guys have just, you know, casual conversation that often happens in, you know, lots of relationships, just talking about nothing. What'd you say? I don't know. I don't think I understand. Can you say it again? I don't understand it. I was asking um, in, in relationships often, like when you're riding in the car or you're just, you know, having a casual day off, you will just talk about your surroundings or it doesn't have to be a specific topic. Are, are you all at that place in your relationship where you've learned how to navigate, like what to talk about or not talk about? Yes. And a lot of times, what I do, one thing I do miss, I, I notice it with other couples, I have it with certain friends, is sort of you know, kibitzing back and forth and, mm-hmm. you know, kind of tossing back and forth a stupid shake, you know, whatever. <laughs> and Mike doesn't like to do that at all. And in fact, when my college friends come around and we do that, what we used to do in college, he doesn't like it. You know, yeah. it, he doesn't say anything. He tolerates it. But afterwards, he'll say, you know, that was so irritating. But it isn't <laughs> for me. It's just fun. It's mindless. It's, you know, so I do. I miss that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But but it sounds like you have other people that you engage with that. To, yes. to do that yeah and I get I my think, needs met. yeah yeah and you get your needs met and I think that's what's so important in any relationship but especially in a neurodiverse relationship because Mike you're not alone um in not necessarily loving the kibitzing and the small talk and I'm Jewish too Joe so okay. um, <laughs> um so so and and I remember my ex saying to me when we were separated he, he said he was very blunt he was like I don't really care about the things that you care about anymore. And what I realized is that he was uh, putting up with me doing the small talk and having conversations about things that were important to me because he loved me. But then when he didn't have to do it anymore, he was very blunt about, no, I really don't like small talk and I'm really not interested in any of the things you're interested in. But I think that a lot of neurodiverse couples do that. They kind of make a space for you know their partner to get that need met from somebody else if it kind of drives them crazy to do it so it sounds like you guys again have created a nice balance yeah yeah awesome awesome what about what about processing I know Manisa asked that because like making decisions was a really challenging thing for my ex um, you know, having conversations about major life changes, you know, a move or having a baby, like he had said, we'll wait five years to have a baby. And then we ended up waiting nine years because that was his decision. So how about processing decisions and, and change in your life? How does that look different or, or the same between the two of you? I have no problem making decisions. Awesome. Once I make the decision, it stays. Awesome. So never regret it in the future. That's fabulous. That's fabulous. How long does it usually take you to make major decisions that involve you and Joe? A long time. <laughs> because you, you won't change. Well, all right, so we may have different ideas about why, but it's like I really related to what you just said. If uh, we're going to do, do something, it's he's got to think about it. It's going to take a while. It could take years uh-huh. before something um big uh, is decided and in the challenge I think is Joe and Mike um, having patience and understanding that it's a process 
And the process may be different for both of you. Like I could make a decision, uh, you know, overnight and my ex, it might take months for him to research like a new car. I don't know if that's something that you do, Mike. He does. Yes. Okay. And, and maybe you can share a little bit about why that's important to you, like to do that level of research. Because when you make a decision, you said you don't go back, no regrets. I is think that's it- part of it is I want to get it right the first time. Love it. So I need all the information I can get and then do pros and cons and then finally make a decision. I love it. And then you're 100% sure when you say yes. Yes. And, and Joe, wh- what about you? Are you able to, you know, process things quicker or? I think I've learned to appreciate the way he does it. Um, I, I'm more impulsive. I'm going to, I want to do it sooner than later. And the choices aren't always great. Then I end up making multiple choices about the same thing because uh-huh. I didn't think about it. I don't know if all people with autism have this, but what he has the ability to do that I don't <clears throat> is, um, <clears throat> I have to live through something to get it. I can't mm. just like watch a movie or hear about it or think about it or read about it and go, oh yeah, that's probably not something I want to do. And live it. He's like, no, no, I know that. Oh, I'll tell him. You know, Grant was horrible what just happened to me, wasn't it? He goes, I knew that was going to happen. That's exactly how I thought it would go. Like he, multiple times like that. He can just, I don't know if that's normal for autism or if it's just him. Well, I will tell you that I think it might be part of the autistic brain. And and Mike, tell me, have you ever watched The Good Doctor, the show The Good Doctor, either of you? A tiny bit. No, I haven't watched it in particular. Okay. Well, one of the things that he does is he's able to look at whatever the patient's problem is, and he's able to visualize every potential way of addressing it. Yes. And it's like he can see the whole picture in his head. And, so and that, that is. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think it's something that a lot of people who are, autistic can, who are autistic can do. And it's such a strength and a gift. And I don't know how you would explain it, Mike. I, I don't know if I did that justice. Well, I can picture something. And then I can mentally rotate it mm-hmm. in my mind see it different directions and And i also have somewhat of an eidetic memory i can go back and view like walking into my house that i grew up in i can actually walk through it in my mind in pictures wow what about memorizing and like you know i don't know if you guys did your own vows i would never have been able to memorize vows you know, are are you good with memorizing things? No, that... it's just it's just the opposite. If it's an image, mm-hmm. I can retain it. Okay. But other things, uh, they actually get translated because I was in IT for a long time. The information I would read on a page would then be translated into something I would remember to use, but I would not remember it verbatim. Wow. So you transfer it into pictures or like a visual so that you can retain it. Some other form, yes. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. That's wonderful. Manisa, did you have another question? Yeah, I have a lot of questions, but I'm I'm going to hone them in for the sake of time. So one of the questions, I want to get back to your relationship again, um, because it seems as if 
uh, well, not seem, but I know that you guys are in a neurodiverse relationship. And so that presents some challenges um, in and of itself. But I wanted to talk about uh, spe- special interests. And Mike, do you have any special interests that you engage in? And Joe, how do, if he does, how do, how do those special interests uh, interfere or do they add to your relationship? I think my special interest right now is reading. Plus, I'm watching primarily British news and British TV shows. Mm. Anything in particular you'd recommend? As far as British TV shows, uh, I have so many. Okay, uh, Mid- Midsummer Murders, okay. Silent Witness. All right, Waking the Dead are probably right. three top. Awesome. Well, I'll have to check them out because I love British uh, TV. Thank you. So, so what about you, Joe? Do you have any um, special interests, and how did the two your both your special interests kind of come together, or you know, give you your alone time? How does that work? Uh, more alone time. I don't know. I think until you tell me if you think I'm wrong, I feel like I've adapted more to his special interest than he has to mine. He's tried with mine, but he, he like he doesn't love the things that I love. And I have learned things that he likes, like those British movies. I hated them at first. I didn't really <laughs> understand them. I wasn't you know, I was like, I wasn't very cultured. That's another thing. I wasn't raised very cultured or my family wasn't really smart. So I didn't. Well, I, I have an intelligence. I didn't have I wasn't like worldly. My, my family just wasn't like that. Mm-hmm. So I've, I feel like I, now I understand how much I've learned from him about that. But I feel like I've adapted more to you, don't you think? I would think so. I also have some physical limitations because of migraines. Mm. So he likes music and I really need silence. He likes light and I really need it darker. So there are accommodations on that part. When we get in the car, I automatically close the sunroof line because even that amount of light is a little bit too much. Gotcha. And Joe, well, it sounds like Joe understands and um, is is sensitive to your needs, your sensory needs. Is that correct? Yeah. Before we really realized he had Asperger's, it was, um, he was buying these books, uh, highly gifted, no, highly, highly sensitive, sensitive person. You know, mm-hmm. now she has a whole series, that author. She's yep. great. Elaine and, Aaron. Yes. And yes. What's her name? Elaine Aaron. Dr. Elaine Aaron. Aaron yeah. Yep. And, and he is. He's very sensitive to light, to sound, to emotion, you know. And um, so I had to get used to that because I'm not. I like a lot of stimulation. Um, and he doesn't. Yeah, I, I think that is a challenge for a lot of neurodiverse couples. And I think a lot of the couples that we've talked to, they try to have their own space or their own room if they can't create that environment throughout the house because maybe they have kids or, you know, the house isn't big enough. So do you all have like separate rooms where you can go to? And... <laughs> we, have, uh, we, have separate, we have separate levels. Okay. I, have, I have the top floor, which is my bedroom, bathroom. I have a library in that living room. And then he has the lower level, master bedroom, bathroom, office, and family room. So really, the only thing he's missing is kitchen. There you go. So you meet in the kitchen to, you know, chat or to eat together? How does that work? Well, he comes into the family room to watch TV. Now, we used to sleep together forever in the same bedroom. And then um, I started, my snoring got really bad. I found out I have sleep apnea. 
Mm. But I, we didn't know that I resisted that for a long time. So I started sleeping downstairs. And um, once I got a CPAP and the noise was gone, we both looked at each other and went, yeah, we're good. We don't have to sleep <laughs> in the same bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, people are like, I did a video on this and it went viral. I was like, you don't have to sleep in the same bed to have a life together. You know, it's not doesn't mean you're roommates. People are so shallow. We're, we have a very fine relationship. But it works better to be on different levels in different rooms. I hear mm-hmm. you. I'm very, very have trouble sleeping, and anything wakes me up. So even once I got the sleep apnea machine, I really can't could stand that either. Yeah, I don't blame you. <laughs> I don't blame you. And uh, before my ex and I knew we were neurodiverse, we started sleeping in separate bedrooms. We still had a fantastic sex life. We just didn't sleep together because he was on a completely different schedule than I was. He only needed four or five hours of sleep and we both snored and we hated that. So, you know, you adjust, you figure it out. So that's great. And I love that you guys can laugh about that. Can we talk? Can we talk a little bit about routine? I know that that's really important for a lot of people, and especially as we get older. Um, is is there a routine that you each have that is complementary, or does that cause challenges in your relationship? Can you talk about, you know, the structure of your day or routine that you each are involved in? I don't know how to answer. That's a good question. I guess I do my thing. He does his thing, and. We cut, he has his household chores. I have mine. I don't know. I think we're very separate. I guess I'd say that that's probably, I, I, I never thought of, I, let me say this yet. We, if we do something together, it has to be supervised. So we have to have a designer. We have to have a therapist. We have to have a, some, some, some third party to help us through something. Otherwise, I think we kind of live separately and come together, like into the family room to watch TV or to go out to dinner or eat. But um, we're not, we don't really do a lot of things together in the house. That is so interesting, Joe. I think that's the first time I've heard somebody phrase it that way. And I think that's a really helpful thing for our listeners. And I wish I had had this thought in my mind, you know, 20 years ago when I was married, you know, that you need a third party to help. I know you're laughing and, and I'm smiling. You need a third party to almost help you translate, right? Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. And, and, you know, we can't all afford, you know, a therapist that's on call 24 seven. Right. So, um, you know, what, do, what do you all do when you need that third party? Is there a therapist that you have? We, up? <laughs> we were able to afford a therapist who was on call. <laughs> wow. He never liked it though. And he has admitted to me that it, he didn't feel like he got a lot out of it, but I, I did. Okay. I felt like she helped me. Uh, we had a couple of them because I just, I ran out of tricks. I did. I'm a therapist, but you know, when you're at your own life, I don't know, I can't figure this out. And it was so foreign to me. I couldn't understand why we were having all these issues. So I needed another pair of eyes, you know, yes. and it was, it was really good. One time I'll tell you what, one time, this is before webcam and zoom and the internet. So he yeah, had with the overstimulating two therapists in the room, all, all this emotion. And right. I had a hard time because I, my mother uh, primarily raised me and she's very histrionic and a lot of facial movement, a lot of frowning, a lot of contemptuous faces, a lot of a lot of crap going on in her face. So that's mm. part of why I think I was attracted to Mike. His face hardly moves. You know, he's got a <laughs> flat affect. He hardly has a wrinkle because of it. And I always liked it. So it was calming to me. Gotcha. But, um, 
one time we couldn't make it to a therapy appointment. It was the weather. No, he had a migraine. It was really bad. So we, she, the therapist said, let's just all do it on the phone. I was in my office at work in another city. He was home in bed and she was in her office and it was the best session we ever had. And we wow. never went back to doing anything in person. I didn't have to see his face because even if he raises his eyebrows, I go to the moon. It's my mother. It reminds me of my mother. And he was overstimulated by my talking and emotion. So it just, it was like, let's just keep doing it on the phone. And the therapist thankfully was okay with that. Wow. You know, mm-hmm. again, Joe, Manisa, you're going, uh-huh. It's <laughs> so interesting. You know, in the past, we didn't do Zoom and we didn't do a lot of webcam, you know, therapy, but now it's becoming the norm. And I really wonder how many neurodiverse couples are better off having the therapist online. And I like the fact that you guys were in separate places. Yep. So you didn't have to see each other. I think you might be onto something with that. What do you think, Manisa? I think so. I do. Yeah. Yeah. I I have said this for years to therapists and, you know, therapists are so, you don't know, I don't know. Uh, if you're one, one of you is a therapist, is that yeah, right? Yeah, Mona is a social worker. Yeah. All right, Mona, you know, so judgmental. Like we're not with our clients, but with each other. So yeah. pretentious, so judgmental. So um, anyway, so I would say though, I think that this Zoom and uh, VC, whatever is out there, is is the best thing for some people, particularly autistic. And they wouldn't they wouldn't believe me. I think they believe me now. Yeah. See, so you were just ahead of the game. Jess. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, Manisa, do you have any other issues you wanted to talk about? I have one, but. No, I just, I'm, again, I'm just so thankful for your transparency. And every week that we get to talk about these relationships and um, it's, it's just amazing how different every relationship is and how you find those um, resources and those skills to help you to, to navigate through it. It's, it's, it's very just, it's, it's just mind blowing. Yeah. And inspiring too. I guess it sounds like you all have a nice rhythm. And when you said, Joe, that 50% of your communication problems and your arguments went away after you watched Adam and you realized that you were a neurodiverse couple, imagine if I had a magic wand or we had a magic wand and we could do that for every neurodiverse couple. Oh, 50% of your problems or your communication challenges go away because now you understand things that drove you nuts about each other. Yes, any couple, I think, could yes. benefit from it. Yeah. <laughs> we have to get that magic wand, Joe. Yes. So I, I have loved this conversation, and I really want to know if there's anything that either one of you feel that our listeners would benefit from knowing has really worked for you to keep your relationship strong and to keep you both strong as individuals. Because I think there's sometimes in neurodiverse relationships that one of the partners might be masking and not feel that they can be themselves. The, and that's oftentimes the autistic partner. And then the a neurotypical partner may feel like uh, they're too much for their neurodivergent partner. So what are your big lessons learned that might help our listeners who are maybe even new in a, a neurodiverse relationship and are just trying to figure it out and navigate? Well, I think one thing is speed of response. My speed has to be very slow. Mm. His has to be very fast. So we both had to change to come up to be more in the middle. I love that. I love that. How did you, Mike, how did you decide what the middle looks like? 
it, do you remember the conversation, what that sounded like? No, it really, it depends on the issue. Okay. So it's not a specific time. Okay. I know. <laughs> so the middle for him would be that we would never discuss it ever again for the rest of our lives. So mm-hmm. I would have to say, I can't go on for the rest of our lives and not talk about this. <laughs> it's too upsetting. I need him. So he had to come. This is normal for all couples, but I think it's sure. a little more extreme and neurodiverse. He had to come forward sooner than he wanted. Okay. Longer than I wanted. And you were both able to do that. I love that. What about, well, what about written versus verbal conversations? Because a lot of the couples that we've talked to have mentioned that texting or emailing gives the autistic partner an opportunity to kind of think through what the issues are on their timeline rather than having to rush into, you know, making decisions or responding. Is that something that you all ever do, texting or emailing or writing a letter? Not really, but we did do it in the past. And it okay. was helpful Very. during, probably before he knew I was neurodiverse. But we did do it to uh, not have the immediate confrontation. Okay. So it was helpful. Right. I think what's really hard for me, but I've, I mean, I've grown so much. I've learned. I'm older now. I'm more mature. But I wasn't in the beginning. And I just didn't like the pacing. Like, I, like. I'm used to having a conversation like we're having. You're back. We're back and forth. Right. Mike wasn't like that. It's not like that when we talk, especially if it's emotionally charged. He just kind of listens and doesn't have a lot to say. Uh, he, he doesn't have a response until after. And it could right. be weeks after. Right. Right. Joe, that one hit home for me. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, you know, again, I think so many neurodiverse couples who end their relationships, if they had had this knowledge ahead of time and had the skills and, and the therapist on call. Yes. Um, it would be so helpful. But it used to drive me nuts because I'd be having a serious conversation with my ex. He'd look at me like a deer in headlights. <laughs> and then and and I thought that he wasn't listening. But you know what? He'd come back three or four days later. And not only was he listening, he memorized every single word I said. And basically his response incorporated things I had said that I had even forgotten about. Right. Does that sound at all familiar to you guys? Or? To me, it does. Yes. And plus, whenever I'm talking or dealing with anything, memory comes back of other things. That's why I get kind of get lost. There's too many other things that I start thinking about that equate to what we're talking about but it's too much to actually detail at that particular time so I need to let it work around and percolate before I can actually come up with talk that makes so much sense and and Mike thank you so much for sharing that because I think that's going to be helpful to a lot of partners I run a free support group for neurodiverse for neurotypical partners and that's one of the things that they are continually challenged by, especially the ones that have young children. And, you know, there's a crisis, the two kids are in the bath and one is screaming, you know, they need a response right away. And it's not that their partner doesn't want to respond. It's just you're gathering more information, you're figuring it out, and your processing time is just slower and maybe too slow for the partner in certain situations. But instead of getting angry, you figure out how you can meet in the middle like you guys did. Yes. It's, yeah, it's much more healthy. So There's one. Go oh, ahead. No, go uh, ahead. I, I, that we haven't talked about, but I, I'm realizing maybe it's not that big of a thing, or we would have talked about it. Being two <laughs> men, 
and being gay men. Yes. Um, I'm trying to think, is there something different? Is there, you know, because so far, I think every couple, no matter what sex and gender you are, um, it can relate to this. But the one thing that is different in our community is I can go out and be alone. Like gay men don't always have to be together as a couple. Heterosexual mm-hmm. couples, you're expected to be together. Where's your wife? How come you're always out without your wife? And while people will ask me that in the gay male community, I'm not ostracized. I'm not. It's sort of like, okay, so your husband's not here, so we're all together. You know, it's it's more permissible to do it than I think in the heterosexual world. I think you might be right about that. And you guys are the first gay couple that we've interviewed. So you yes. are making history on neurodiverse love. Yes. And, um, I think it's wonderful that you shared that because I think you're right. It, it might be seen as people might be more open to that in the gay community. Yeah. yeah, I think in the heterosexual community, are you on the prowl? Why are you never with her? Right. How come you're all dressed up and you're with us without right. her or with him? It's not like that in the gay community. Yeah, are you are you looking for something else? Yeah, right. Yeah, I hear you. Well, thank you so much for that. Is there anything else, um, Mike, that, that you wanted to share before we close out? Um, and Joe, if, if there's anything else. No, anything? I, I can't think of anything. Okay. I would just add that if I could do it all over again, I would. You know, oh, like I, I really feel that way. Like I never met another person that I felt like I could have like a romantic relationship with that um, just endured this long. I, I and we're, in 29 years, I've looked around. I've thought, well, I wonder if, but I'm, I really, I never have never had that feeling like I've had with him. Wow. That's great. That's phenomenal. And Mike? Do you feel the same way or should I not ask you that? <laughs> I know, I was thinking. <laughs> no, that's why I always take time because, as I said, I never regret anything after the fact. Aww. Oh, so I you never regretted me? <laughs> Is that an answer? <laughs> <laughs> he may not have regretted you. That doesn't mean that some days you don't drive each other crazy, right? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> That's just part of life, especially after being together almost 30 years, you guys said, right? Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Well, it has been an absolute pleasure. Uh, Manisa, thank you. Joe and Mike, thank you for your honesty and your vulnerability. I really appreciate it. And our listeners are going to get a lot out of this conversation. And I still have to go watch that movie, Adam, Joe. I I really need to see that. It's very well done. I I look forward to it. And thank you, Mike, for the recommendations for the British shows. And um, if in the future you guys decide you have more to share or you know other uh, neurodiverse couples, we would love to have them come on the Neurodiverse Love Podcast. But thank you both for being with us tonight. All right. Thank you. We really appreciate it. You too. Bye. All right. Take care, both of you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.